This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. No sale. It is no sale. All of you cats can too. While I make all. All right, we got to talk a little bit about the retail environment. President Trump, of course, threatening to impose tariffs on every single Chinese import to America. The world's two largest economies exchanging the first blows in a trade war that isn't set to end anytime soon. So, what might it mean for retailers and, as a result, U.S. consumers? Seema Shah is senior consumer analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's right next to me in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City, along with Hema Parmar, consumer retail reporter here at Bloomberg News, also in our New York studio. Seema, let me kick it off with you. Uh, you look at this. Okay, here we are. These tariffs are coming down. We know so much is manufactured overseas right. in and China. So far, the products that have been focused on are not the retailers that I that we are typically think about, yet. like apparel. Not yet. But should that happen, it would increase the sourcing costs for most retailers in the U.S. So they'd either have to take a margin hit or pass that price increase off to their consumers. So the end consumer might end up paying more for many products that they're already used to getting at a lower price. How much retail is still manufactured over in China? Because I know China has started to do some outsourcing as well when it comes to uh, some. Quite a bit. So okay. for some of the retailers I cover, like Pier 1, it's 60%. And so I would say for a lot of retailers, particularly in furniture, it's quite a bit. People have tried to diversify a little bit, yeah. Vietnam and India and other places, but... I don't think it's still the volume that they have in China. Hema, come on in on this conversation. You and Matt Townsend put out a story today, and you talk about how uh, we're already thinking about Christmas. I mean, retailers have to plan way in advance. What might this mean for a lot of retailers when they start to look about or think about the holiday season? Right, so they do have to plan quite in advance. And they've already made their buying decisions, essentially, for the fall and for Christmas. And some of these items are on their way in or in, you know, already in production. So, um, Have they already agreed on pricing then already? So does the price it's kind of left on the manufacturer? Like, mm-hmm. How does this work? So if they've already purchased, if they've already made their agreements and the items are on the way in, then it, you know those are largely set and done. Um, and when they, um, if these products are on their way in as, let's say, a $200 billion tariff comes into effect... You know, if it were to um, say October-ish, well, then as they're on their way in, then they'll be hit by these imports, and then they'll have to very likely push that down to the consumer um, right around the Christmas fall season. This really is dependent upon President Trump calling for these two hundred billion dollar tariffs. Um, if he puts that into effect, then within a few months, you could really see these things start to move quickly. If he ramps that up to let's say four hundred billion dollars, then you know we import five hundred billion from the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's like 80% of imports from China here. A lot of these retailers, they've looked elsewhere already for places. They settled on China because that was the cheapest option, the best option for them. For them to now look elsewhere and find something that's as competitive is going to be as tricky for them. It's also not easy to just move your supply chain. So it takes time and years, and particularly not as you're going into Q3 and Q4 for holiday. Nobody wants to disrupt. Right their supply chain going into it. So you may not even see the full effect until next year if it does go that route where more and more products are taxed. Seema, have you guys started to look at products and say, okay, so this item that might go for $25 today 
or $40 today now is going to cost what? Like what kind of, do you have any guys, have you guys ever, have you started to play with that? Not so much because a lot of it also depends on the inputs, commodities, like certain products you may not think about might use petroleum-based mm-hmm. derivatives or things like that. So it could be even further up in the supply chain. So I haven't priced to see yeah. what the difference would be, but you'd have to imagine it's essentially a tax on the end consumer. They'll likely have to pay more. And if there are retaliatory tariffs on the other end, it hurts the domestic producers, right? And so then they may not have as much money to spend themselves. And there's also a few things that need to happen in that if he releases, announces a $200 billion tariff, well then, there's a list that needs to be put into place. Okay, the tariffs are going to affect these kind of items. And then there's a period of time where these companies can object and say, you know, take me off that list or put me on or whatever. Um, And so um, they can do that. And sometimes we have seen certain items been taken off of lists, like televisions, for example on the $34 billion that we're seeing right now, mm-hmm. those were taken off because there was you know, harm for, for that industry. So um, what people are really looking closely for, if this happens, what will be on the list? Right. They're assuming it'll be a very broad swath because it is just a big number. Right. Um, but until we know what's precisely on that, it's a little tricky to say with you know 100% certain it'll be this item. It's just a reminder, though, of how global we are, right? And mm-hmm. that this is what happens. You have developed nations go out to developing nations, right, to really manufacture. It's kind of right. the, the pecking order of how things are. But it's not also just China. It's Canada. It's, it's Mexico, who are two of our largest trading partners. There's even tariffs on some Russian products and vice versa. So it actually could be a lot bigger. It's not just who manufactures in China. So you might have to step back and really see where the right. retailers are producing. And a reminder, right, that it's it's global. Like yes. we're all really yes. interconnected. I'm curious, um, as you folks talk to various um, companies, executives within the retail industry, what are you hearing, Seema? Um, overall, I mean, the NRF has been very opposed to having any tariffs at all. The National put, Retail Federation. Yes, and they've put out... Um, different press releases saying why they think it's so bad, essentially, that it will cost more jobs than it will protect. And, it'll, you know, American consumers will have to pay more. So I would say, broadly speaking, most retailers are against it. So I think they would rather obviously have right. the best, most efficient supply chain and not have to pay this. Especially when I feel like retail... The margins are not are pretty slim anyway for a lot of products. And we've had such, uh, you know, two years of hell, if you will, in, mm-hmm. within the retail industry. And I just feel like things have started to settle right. down. Right. And they don't really, as a group, have that much pricing power. So yeah. how much can they actually pass down or they risk sales at all, right? Because it's still somewhat promotional and there's a lot of competition in different sectors of retail. Emma, what are you guys hearing? Yeah, so we spoke with UBS Securities um, the other day and they made a really interesting point in that they they think that this is largely just a, a negotiating tactic. And in their minds... We've seen you know, this before, right? Right. <laughs> like we're, they, they're thinking that, you know, we're not going to see this go beyond the $50 billion tariff, that there's hopefully within the next 6 to 12 months, there'll be some kind of resolution between the U.S. and China, and that'll be the end of it, and we won't get the $200 billion tariff. I'm sure everyone's kind of hoping right. um, that within the, within the industry. Um, and if that were to happen, well, then a lot of the, the retailers and the consumers um, paying the, the end price would be spared. From I think that's what the market is, also, right? You know, waiting it's, to see if it's mm-hmm. just negotiating or yeah. Or everybody's at the beach. I'm just saying. Seema <laughs> Shah of Bloomberg Intelligence, Hema Parmar of Bloomberg News. Thank you both so much. Have a great weekend. This is Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, Atlantic City, hoping to feel lucky. Uh, On the path to revival again, among the new casinos that just had their grand openings, the Ocean Resort Casino, formerly 
the Ravel uh, Hotel and Casino that opened and closed rather quickly. Here to talk about the AC Revival, Bruce Difek. He's founder, president, and CEO at Integrated Properties, the majority owner of the Ocean Resort Casino. He joins us on the phone from uh, Denver. Bruce, great to have you here with us. We've been talking a lot with our, our Simone Foxman of Bloomberg News about what you guys are up to. You are pumping a lot of money. You've got a lot at stake in this casino. What makes you think that it's going to be different this time around for AC? Well, Carol, first of all, good, good afternoon, and thank you for having me on. Yeah. And, and Simone is terrific. She is. Uh, just a correction. I'm not in Denver. The reason why I think it's going to be different is because I'm actually in Atlantic and I've lived here 90% of the time over the last 15 months uh, to be here and, and work very closely with my wonderful team of executives and our roughly 3,300 team members. So we take this very seriously. It's my family. You know, can I can I just say it's so funny because I was looking at my notes and I was saying, man, you know, if you're going to make it a go, you got to be there. And so it's good to hear that that's where you are. Right. Because you've got to be on top of it. Well, yeah, you don't have I mean, you know, this is a six point four million square foot facility. And like I said, roughly thirty three hundred team members and it's 24 hours a day. It really is a small city, so whether it's one of the larger properties in Las Vegas or one of the larger properties in Atlantic City, you know, it's just on the constant move. And whether it's cleaning or operations, checking people in, checking people out, food service, you know, we have 16 restaurants, all of the amenities, things like that. You have to pay attention. And, you know, I'd like to say that our launch last Thursday, or ribbon cutting, you know, we were very pleased with, with what happened on Thursday. The crowds have been magnificent. The mm-hmm. customers have been terrific. But, you know, when you have a startup like this, whether it was us, the Hard Rock, or anyone, you know, you have those kinks that you have to iron out. You know, you want to check people in, you know, quicker. You want to make sure that the rooms are, are taken care of the right way, that room service gets to rooms, that when people sit down at a restaurant for meals, things like that, that top golf is set up exactly the way people expect, those kind of things. All of your retail stores are open, things like that. You know, so, you know, is it perfect? No, it's not perfect, and 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 but it, but it's perfect from the standpoint that we're committed yeah. to making sure that we move in a very positive direction. The property is a beautiful property, and 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 the customers that are coming through, the thousands of customers that are coming through uh, here. You know, we're hearing wonderful things. They love the property. They do that, and 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 they're very patient because. It, Go ahead, no, I just want to jump in for a second because, you know, I'm thinking about people who have said, listen, we've, we've heard about AC revivals, and you personally have a lot at stake. From what I, I understand, you've barred against, I think, all of your other properties, invested pretty much all your liquid resources in this casino. So personally, you've got a lot at stake, but you are doing something different in trying to really attract a broader range of clientele. Uh, Simone noted this in her reporting. You talk about a space that used to be a poker room being remodeled with pool tables, air hockey, computers for video Video games to bring in millennials. Mark Wahlberg is going to be opening up a restaurant. Uh, you've also got, I think, a, a, you're going to be hosting Gamecon Esports. So you are thinking about that younger generation, that generation that if you can attract them, they could be coming for years. Absolutely, that's the case. I'm, you know, I, I've had the, the great fortune over the last 14 months. I had never been to Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had read about it. I had seen it. I had never been to the property. But I can tell you that two years ago, two and a half years ago, that Atlantic City started forming a base, a foundation under its feet. And, and it's interesting. Within a five, six-hour drive or a one-hour flight, I think there's 70 million, 80 million people. And if you give 
people, families, individuals, millennials, uh, you know, the gaming customer that wants to come and play slots or do whatever, you know, the couple that wants to get away for a staycation. If you give those people what they want and, and, and treat them with respect and give them mm-hmm. the level of service that, that they deserve, right. the dollars that they spend, and you give them a beautiful beach boardwalk and ocean above and beyond that, why on earth would somebody get on a plane five, five hours <laughs> to go somewhere else right. when, they have, when they have those kind of things? So you're right. We are going after millennials. I am going after esports conferences and conventions. I am going to bring back you know, professional boxing with Top Rank and, and others to Atlantic City and, and mixed martial arts. We're doing that along with – we're very respectful of Hard Rock, Borgata, Tropicana, Harris on their concerts, things like that. And – and, and we're going to bring that and different types of entertainment. You know, Las Vegas is, is a very, I spent a lot of time in Las Vegas right, right. over the last 30 years working and running companies and being partners. And they've moved needles from, you know, 70%, 80% of the casino being, you know, the the, okay. uh, the revenue share yeah. to 20 to where they moved it now. It's probably 50 50 well, or 60% right. food and beverage and rooms. Yeah. Hey, listen, we got to run, Bruce, and we're going to keep a watch, and I hope we can check back with you a little bit later on in the season uh, to see how things are going. Bruce uh, Dyfek, he's founder, president, and chief executive officer of Integrated Properties, uh, really behind the Ocean Resort Casino. Whistle while you wake. Uh, yes, and speaking of work, U.S. hiring topping forecasts in June while unemployment rose from an 18-year low. Wage gains unexpectedly slowing a little bit, indicating the labor market still has room to keep expanding. Can you believe here we are still saying that? Let's get some thoughts on today's jobs data and the labor market. Uh, Lara Ream is with us, chief U.S. economist at FS Investments based in Philadelphia in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Also, John Pedrides is managing director, portfolio manager at Point View Wealth Management with us from Summit New Jersey, so we can talk a little bit about the economic perspective, the market perspective. Lara, let me start with you. Sure. It is kind of crazy, right? Here we are. This recovery has been going on, what, second longest in history? Yep. And just when we think, okay, that's it, there's no more hiring to do, you know, we get a, a 200,000 print. Uh, pretty remarkable. How do you see it? So this stream of job growth that's gone on for years, it's extraordinary. Here I am talking to the younger guys in my office, and I'm saying that in past expansions, this would have been viewed as an exceptionally strong number. And it's like we're so uh, used to these. We've become so complacent. If we get only 150 payroll gains, markets get scared that things are slowing down. So I would almost say that these gains have been relentless. Yeah. And and uh, I think what we're starting to really focus in on are these secondary measures of health of the labor market. Are the job gains in skilled areas? Are the job gains giving us any wage growth? Are the jobs, are we seeing the underemployment? Sort of are we seeing people employed at the level which they would like to be employed? Right. All these things that really give us a clearer picture that we're moving the needle from, you know, recovery to um, overheating. That's now what is the focus. That's what we're focusing on. Let me let me bring in John to just get the market perspective. John uh, Padridis over at Point View Wealth Management. John, investors, certainly the equity investors, they like this number. And I looked, you know, where the 10-year was. It's not like we're over 3% or anything. Uh, 282 right now. So, John, investors like this number. How did you see it? 
Yeah, no, no question. I mean, this definitely helps beat the drum on the Goldilocks story for the market. And, and the biggest uh, factor in the report was the wage growth at 2.6%. Right. You know, you had wage compression, wage growth compression really following the scare in the January jobs number when the wage growth popped to 2.9%. Now, then the market puked and panicked in February and said, you know, the Fed is going to be on this runaway, runaway path of, of rates going higher. But then you had this, you know, really nice step down each month, 2.8, 2.7, 2.6, 2.6, and we've been in this sort of controlled holding pattern, and that allows the Fed to play this game of um, of gradually telegraphing its moves right. uh, on interest rates higher, and you know that's the good news for stocks. I hate to say it because it seems so trite, but this whole idea, this concept of a Goldilocks economy, uh, Lara, is I feel like that's kind of where we are. So, so or are far, we? Right. Well, that I think that's the question because, you know, there are these two really important concepts that are linked. There's growth, which we're seeing at a very high level. Second quarter could print GDP of 4%, um, you know, and mm-hmm. even above that. But then there's this second concept of potential growth. And that's what is still challenged. The Fed estimates that number of 1.8%. You know, we are really, uh, the engine is really revving a lot higher than where many economists estimate that it should be. Right. And that's what, over time, could build up these imbalances, like an unemployment rate that's extremely low. But then you have, on top of that, though, you have the trade war concerns, right? And that kind of, I feel like, right, John? I mean, that just then, all of a sudden, it's like we speed up, we have our foot Mm -hmm. on the gas, and then all of a sudden, that happens, and like, eh, we pull off a little bit, John. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't have the boogeyman of the potential trade war, uh, you know, exploding to a to a, to a new level, I think the market would be at maybe one and a half percent today. Um, you know, I think that is a risk that is holding investors back because they just quite can't figure out how to wrap that into discounting future cash flows. And what I'm hoping for on the upcoming earnings season is that when we look across various sectors, we start getting a feel of if and how aluminum and steel tariffs are impacting uh, company earnings. And if management uh, in sectors all across the board are planning for it, you know, because right now, you know, the market just reacts to tweets and headlines one way Mm -hmm. or the other because they can't put a lasso around the, the numbers. Yeah. uh, You know, John, I think it's such a higher volatility world. I'm really interested in your thoughts because to me, it seems like engaging, investing in companies that have a more domestically led focus uh, that aren't as exposed to either the currency fluctuations. We've seen volatility there. The uncertainty of these international companies with big international revenue dependencies. Right. What are your views on that? Well, here's what I'm concerned about for the upcoming earnings results, which are going to start rolling out uh, in a week, week and a half time, is, you know, market expectations is for 20 percent earnings growth year over year, which is really high. And there are several variables that can really throw that off course. One is, as you just mentioned, you know, the dollar was very strong during the second quarter. So, uh, you know, as we all know, the S&P 500 is a global index and gets about 40 percent of sales overseas. So, you know, you're going to have FX translations here uh, that could impact earnings. The second one is oil has been, you know, above $60 per barrel for the entire year and recently ticked above $70. So, you know, what is higher oil costs going to do to companies' profit margins? And then again, I think that the, the trade war tariffs is another variable that, uh, you know, that, that could be disrupting uh, company earnings here. So, so I'm a bit concerned that maybe estimates are a bit too high. 
um, coming into the quarter. Right. But we'll certainly see. I mean, Laura, we just got about uh, 40 seconds left here. 20 seconds for you, though. What are you watching in earnings season? What do you want to hear from those CEOs? You know, to me, it's really about whether or not they're still engaging in capital investment mm-hmm. or if they're holding back those plans because of uncertainty. Because we just finally started to see, right. I feel like, companies spend. John, what are you watching in earnings? Yeah, so nervous about the banks because of the flattening of the yield curve mm-hmm. uh, yeah. from an earnings standpoint and really excited about the energy sector. I mean, with oil above $70 a barrel, I don't think anyone has penciled in uh, the potential uh, earnings uh, explosion that could happen on the energy side. So look for the energy sector to knock it out of the park. All right. Great. Thank you both so much. Have a wonderful weekend. Uh, Lara Rames, so great to see you again. Thanks. It's been a while. Chief U.S. Economist at FS Investments based in Philly in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And our thanks to uh, John Pedridis Great to talk with him as well. On the phone in Summit, New Jersey, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at Point View Wealth Management. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody. This is certainly one company, one stock we're watching today. Biogen surging the most in just about seven years after an Alzheimer's drug showed positive results in a large clinical trial. And it's raising some hopes for treatment of a disease that has really, really befuddled researchers for decades. Our Cynthia, Cynthia Coons knows all about this. She's U.S. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Cynthia joining us on the phone right here in New York City. <laughs> Can you tell it's Friday, Cynthia? We. Um, Biogen. First of all, tell us about this drug. Well, this is this is a real surprise. This is not Biogen's leading Alzheimer's candidate, which is a different drug that investors are waiting a little while longer to see results from. This is actually a drug. It's kind of a sleeper. Mm-hmm. It had um, it, it failed in a clinical trial in December, and investors now it's pretty much forgot about it, and I don't think many analysts had this in their model as a potential profit driver going forward. But basically what happened was in the 18-month data readout, the drug um, slowed the progression of Alzheimer's for some patients who are taking the highest dose of the drug. And that's very meaningful because for Alzheimer's, we have therapies that you might be able to take to treat the symptoms once you have the disease, but we have no therapies that slow the disease of the drug. That's explicitly what drug makers have been trying to do for years. And the biggest drug makers who've been in this field trying to find cures or even realistic treatment options for Alzheimer's have actually left. And so Mm. there aren't that many players left in here, but Biogen is one of them. I love your story, or I love the story out here on the Bloomberg. And I know you follow um, the the pharmaceutical areas so, so closely, but there's been more than 100 experimental drugs that have been trying to figure out and treat Alzheimer's. They have all failed. And we know that Mm. part of the reason the pharmaceutical industry keeps persisting is that this market size, potential market size, is huge. I think as much as $30 billion in the U.S. alone because so many people, right, living longer, that's all wonderful, but they end up getting some kind of uh, ailment in those later years, and often it's Alzheimer's. Yeah, and let's, uh, let's in the context of, of the business of drugs, this is a disease that, frankly, because there's nothing else, mm-hmm. you can put a big price tag on a successful drug that comes to the market, and that's what investors know and that's what they're waiting for and that's why the shares can rise as much as 20 some odd percent on a drug that really people had kind of given up on or hadn't been really paying that much attention to because the idea that anything could work here is just i mean you just have the market to yourself if you're a company like biogen and you get there first and they really don't have that many competitors 
Pfizer has less the space. Lilly has scaled back significantly. Merck had a failure recently. And so we have a succession. J&J has basically pulled out. So we have a succession of the big companies that you would expect would be potentially getting in here. They're really not that competitive here. So, so Biogen has a big potential runway here. But let's be clear. This is not a late-stage trial. This is a mid-stage trial. Right. And a lot of what has happened in Alzheimer's development, as things look good, and then you get further along the progress, pro- process of developing the drug, and it doesn't work out. And that's actually happened for all all of the biggest drug makers, the smartest minds in drug development have been trying to go after this and have not succeeded. And a lot of what they've done is tinkering to figure out exactly what are the right doses of drugs, what are the right sort of the mechanism to go after, the way the drug could work in the brain. There's there's many different ways, statistical modeling, different endpoints. There's many different ways that you can sort of power a study for it to succeed. But even with all of the work and history that's gone on to date, no, no one has done that to such a great scale that we have a disease-modifying drug yet. So this is the reality for, for Biogen is they're actually taking a lot of the learnings of a lot of the failures. And what they would say is that those failures are not failures. They're successes because they teach us things along the way. And so their ability to potentially succeed here is based on so much of that learning. Right. But the reality is this has to flow through into a late-stage trial with hundreds of patients, and it has to succeed where so many drugs have not. So right. there's, there's a healthy dose of skepticism that people should have about this kind of result. I hate to rain on the parade, right, because everybody is really kind of holding out for some kind of, um, you know, really valid, useful um, treatment for Alzheimer's. But as you say, it's early on in the process, and, and now that it's going to go to a much larger sampling of patients, you really get to see if, if indeed it works. Why is it, Cynthia, so tricky? We have about a minute left. Why is it so tricky to find something to effectively treat Alzheimer's? Well, we know our understanding of Alzheimer's has developed a lot over the last couple of years, even very recently. We we sort of have established that amyloid builds up in the brain of patients who have this disease, and so these drugs target that. And the mechanism of say, clearing amyloid out of the brain or preventing the formation of plaques hasn't necessarily translated into people not having cognitive decline. So other researchers have gone after another um, another problem in the brain called tau tangles that also build up in these patients. So there's a whole other school of research going after that now. So our understanding of the basic underlying disease has mm-hmm. really emerged as scanning has gotten better at brain scanning and our basic science has evolved. So some of the basic sort of underpinnings to develop a drug haven't necessarily been there. And as they've developed and drug makers have been able to respond. So that's, right. that's a part of why this has been so hard. And it's the yeah. brain. Most things in the neurospace are really tricky to tackle. And so yeah. we just have to hold out hope that something does succeed here. We shall see. And there'll be more to come on this one. Um, Cynthia Coons, thank you for keep getting us up to speed on this. Cynthia Coons, she's our U.S. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York. Check her out at Cynthia L. Coons on Twitter. Biogen shares are up almost 19% as we speak. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
Time for the drive to the close. Cole Smead, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management. Smead Value Fund, by the way, gaining about 11% annually over the past five years, beating most of its peers, putting it in the 79th percentile. They've got about $2.2 billion in assets under management at Smead Capital. And Cole joining us on the phone from Seattle. Hey, nice to have you back with us. Um, I got to go right to this trade tariffs, U.S.-China back and forth. How does this factor in, if at all, Cole, into your thinking about the farm? financial markets overall, and maybe specific investment plays? Well, we were looking at the individual investor sentiment here recently, and it looks like, um, you know, individual investors you know, are a little bit scared over this, but as it pertains to, you know, how effects we look at, you know, at businesses and whatnot, um, we, we very much view it as a non-factor. And I say that because it's something that, I mean, it's well, well covered in the media, it's well talked about, it's definitely not consensus for what we've seen from a myriad of presidents going back uh, quite a long ways. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, its ac- actual economic effect today, we, we would argue, is pretty small. How do you value the market at this point? What are, what are the measurements that you're looking at or comparisons um, to kind of get a feel of where we are in terms of value? Well, it's a great question. I'm working on a piece that was kind of teed off by some work Goldman Sachs had done. Uh, they had a piece out recently called Technology Stocks Are Not a Bubble. <laughs> and the most interesting part of their work was a chart they put up, a couple charts, uh, where they looked at the market capitalization of various global technology companies relative to countries. So, for example, um, if you took Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google and combined them together – um, they are slightly bigger than the yearly GDP of Germany. Now, I would ask you, Carol, mm-hmm. you know, in the next 12 months, would you rather own those five big tech stocks or gain all the income off Germany? And as, as, uh, as Munger has talked about, you invert, you always invert. You think about things in a backwards way to ask the assumption of, you know, to ask what your assumptions are and try and gain if you're thinking poorly. And I would say, personally, I'd much rather take Germany over those five stocks as an example. That's fascinating. That's an interesting well, it, way. It, yeah, go ahead. But, but it, 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 just, it gets at the <sighs> history. In other words, yeah. Where do we sit at this point in time? And the question is, we don't get to know the future, mm-hmm. but it, asking very rational, basic assumptions. So I'll, I'll give you another comparison. Well, it's, it also means putting your eggs in a few big eggs versus spreading it out. Well, yeah, you're right. In other words, you have more diversification yes. in the GDP of Germany, I would agree. Uh, and th- th- this is not like past manias, uh, you know, identically. So, for example, in 99, that was 75 to 100 stocks that were sucking up 60% of the market cap of the S&P 500. In 1972, it was 50 stocks across a myriad of industries, but it was only 50 stocks mm-hmm. uh, relative to 99. Today, it's I, I call it, you know, rather than being the nifty 50, this this is like the nifty 15. That's how narrow the right. number of companies are today. And the only problem is that it doesn't mean it's not a mania. Just because it's not like the other manias, you know, history never repeats itself, but it rhymes. And the rhymes are there. What crypto is today is what Beanie Babies were in 1999, as an example. So we have all the trappings of what we call, uh, of what John Kenneth Galbraith referred to as a financial euphoria or what we'd call a mania. And the problem is, as Munger would often argue, that, you know, the best way to make money is to practice ignorance avoidance and that is our opportunity today as, as as we think people should be thinking about this. right and of course you're talking about charlie munger you know along there with warren buffett over at berkshire hathaway hey let's talk about names because you guys have been a big buyer of discovery uh ticker d-i-s-c-a what's uh, you know it's hard not to like 
almost any media company that's producing content because they are indeed in demand at this point. Yeah. Well, as of today, I mean, we could walk back in the last six months and uh, Discovery was being treated as though they've been left in the sands of time Mm -hmm. as Netflix and other content creators. So um, we were putting together our notes for our webcast coming up for our fund shareholders. And, um, you know, the the cost being paid by the Netflixes of the world, uh, just to give you a sense, The Crown – uh, that, that was produced by Netflix was $13 million in an episode. Now, I watched The Crown. It was a fun show yeah, to watch. Yeah, me too. Angle files. Mm-hmm. It's great. But uh, Game of Thrones, which has a way, way bigger following uh, across this country and the globe, was only $10 million an episode in comparison with a much bigger audience. So it highlights how much money is being thrown at content, but we would ask the question, what's very profitable content? For example, those are very high production costs. Um, our good, the good folks, Chip and Joanna Gainstein and Waco, um, they're great personalities, but season one, they cost nothing for what was then scripts, now part of Discovery. So non-scripted content is terribly profitable. Uh, you know, I don't know if you saw uh, Endemol Shine, which is a content creator privately yeah. held by Fox and uh, Apollo, is up on the block right now. And to your point, people recognize the value of content relative to the platforms themselves. Right. The irony is, I would argue, the long run of Netflix is nothing more than a platform because they cannot produce profitable content outside of what I would call our incredibly aggressive financial shenanigans. What's interesting, Discovery, and I was just looking, you guys are among, I think, the top 11 shareholders, and I think you added, I just have records as of the end of... uh, of March, and you added another, I think, 500,000 shares. I mean, the stock, Discovery, is up about 30% from the end of March. So this has been a good run. Are you pairing back a little bit because of the gains or no? Just quickly. Carol, May West once said, too much of a good thing could be wonderful. (laughs) You got your little quotes here today. It's very funny. we probably don't own enough, to be honest. uh, So you've been adding, adding since the end of March? We, we've been a buyer. Uh, when John Malone calls his broker, we're calling ours. So huh. to have the strong hands we have with Malone there, uh, with the understanding and the expertise he has from his history as an investor in that arena, right. combined with got it. Um, the street's negativity is quite a, a great coupling. Okay, we got to run. Hey, have a good weekend. Cole Smead, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital uh, Management, on the phone from Seattle. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.